Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts, LARB Editors at Large, Medea Ocher and Kate Wolf. Smooth. I know, I didn't have to repeat it twice. <laughs> I know, really good. <laughs> really good. Um, hi, Eric. Hi. Uh, so on this week's show, we've got a sort of queer doubleheader just in time for Valentine's Day weekend. First up, we'll have a conversation with Jeremy Atherton Lynn about his new book, Gay Bar, Why We Went Out, which explores the cultural history of gay bars and also personal history across London, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. And after that, we go deep into relationships, representation, and queer time with Brontes Purnell in a conversation about his novel, 100 Boyfriends. Yeah, actually, I didn't even think that this was um, a Valentine's Day show, but it totally is. That completely makes sense. Yeah, because it's um, love and hookups and partying. That's what I want to (laughs) do. Exactly. I think we all want that right now. I mean, is that offensive to my husband? I don't know. No, he's not listening. <laughs> You're right. He's not. <laughs> Definitely not. Yeah, I'm happy to insult all our husbands. Yeah, exactly. What are yeah, they that's there right. for? All of us. All of us are married, so it's like you know, yes, and and yet the first thing that all of us want to do is go out to bars and hook up with people. Oh, yeah. I'm ready. I know I'm not welcome at the gay bar, but I can go to a different kind of bar. That's not true, Medea. <laughs> Thank you, Eric. All right. Well, let's get into it. So whether you're queer or straight, partnered like us or flying solo or just plain not engaging with it at all, I guess, here's our Valentine's Day card to you, listeners. We are excited to have critic and essayist Jeremy Atherton Lynn joining us remotely from London today. Jeremy is an editor at Failed States, a journal of art and writing on place, and his criticism and essays have appeared in the Times Literary Supplement, The White Review, and Tinted Window. He joins us today to talk about his first book, Gay Bar, Why We Went Out, published this month by Little Brown. A sort of elegy for an institution that many of us have watched erode over the past several decades, Lynn's book moves between London, San Francisco, and Los Angeles on a journey through the author's personal memories, recollections that themselves offer a window into the longer history of specific gay bars and the cultural changes that coursed through and around them. Gay bar is no hagiography, however. And Atherton Lynn is careful to parse the wobbly balance between the utopian promise of the gay bar and its real-world shortcomings. At once a place where queers can imagine coming together in acceptance, the gay bar is also often structured by the prejudices about race, body type, age, and social class that rainbow glasses might like to apply only to the outside world. At a time when many of us are sequestered in the confines of our homes and apartments, cut off from the previous social worlds that we enjoyed by lockdowns and pandemic restrictions, Gay Bar, Why We Went Out, offers a thoughtful consideration of the spaces, encounters, and scenes that we very much miss. Welcome to the show, Jeremy. Thank you so much for having me. So I think we should start in kind of where this project started. It looked like it was shortlisted for the Fitzcarraldo Essay Prize in 2019. Is that right? 2018, I think, yeah. 2018. So you've been working on it for a while, and I want to hear a little bit about how you started working on it and where the idea came from. Yeah, Aside from I mean, just going to bars. <laughs> yeah. 
Yes, I have, in a way, been thinking about it for a while, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But I also always wanted to hold off from committing to it until I knew it had a deadline because I wanted Mm -hmm. it to be written in a concise period of time because I wanted there to be a sort of sense of spontaneity, I guess, in it and kind of discovery. And so it wound up being about 11 months that I wrote it within, even though there are fragments of it that started earlier when I was studying at the Royal College of Art, and then it was shortlisted for Fitzcarraldo. So that was in 2018. And 2017, 2016, around there, over half of uh, the gay bar in the space of a decade. So it was in the news in mainstream sort of broadsheet newspapers. And it was very much a part of the experience for many of us in terms of finding another place that you used to go to was closed. And I think for me, what it was about was there was a lot of, as Eric said, kind of hagiography in the press about lamenting the gay bar as if it was a singular institution or had represented one thing. And I think for me, it kind of raised this bigger question about how I felt about it personally, seeing this representation of an identity that you have been given or have taken on, represented in cities, and so then these monuments are closing and the lights are going out on these gay bars and you kind of begin to feel like what your affinity for that space or those spaces have been, how you identify or what your conflicted feelings might be about identifying with these spaces and whether it represented the kind of end of gay identity as we'd known it. Just to pick up on that, obviously, you know, yeah, as I said in the introduction, it reads like an elegy and I think is self-consciously so for all the reasons that you're talking about in terms of changes in kind of London's gay bar life, which is true in almost every other major city. We've seen like the mass closure of gay bars. But can you kind of talk about that erosion? Because it seems to me, you and I think are roughly the same age, that the gay bar had a kind of centrality in gay cultural life in, let's say, like the 90s and very early 2000s. And even in that early 2000s, it's starting to kind of ebb away. And it seems that once we hit post-2010 and you have kind of more gay life spreads out into digital apps, you know, hookup apps like Grindr and Scruff and those sorts of things, But it also seems like a younger generation wanted different types of experiences than what the gay bar used to offer. So can you just talk about what you think is causing that erosion? I think for me, it wasn't, I was like taken out, you know? I mean, people kind of identified what they thought about me was gay, you know? Mm -hmm. And kind of pushed me into a car and took me down the street to the gay neighborhood, which was West Hollywood because I was at UCLA. So that was kind of, This is the narrative that you tend to hear from maybe an older generation than us, which is there is this gay bar that is unmarked and has darkened windows, but everybody kind of, you know, there's this tacit understanding that that's where it is and that that's where you might discover your true self. You walk by nervously and you circle the block and you don't, can't bring yourself to go in. And then the next night you do. And a handsome man glances your way and a drag queen takes your hand and brings you to the stage and serenades you and you're gay, you know? And it's like, so in a way for me, I feel like I'm very much a part of a kind of in-between generation where Mm -hmm. I don't think that I necessarily sought it out in that way. Like this kind of intrepid adventurer. It was just that when people around me recognized that (laughs) I needed to come in 
come out by coming into these spaces. I was sort of brought along and I kind of began to see how there is a public reality of gayness. And then I had to question like what, how I identified with that. I'm not sure in which cases a sort of younger generation wants to be in pluralistic environments and wants to be in more kind of self-segregated environments. I think both actually exist in a lot of different forms. So I think it's quite natural for a lot of young people today to just socialize with who, I mean, I always have anyway, to socialize with people from all kinds of self-identifications. But then at the same time, there are these really niche sort of enclaves. There are places that you have to kind of, there's like a door checker. Like a gatekeeper. Yeah. Yeah, and there are places that are specifically for, here in London, well, before the lockdown, there were places specifically for people of color and trans people and femme-identified people, whether or not that's, you know, however that, you know. I mean, it's interesting. I think that is absolutely right. I think that part of, for a variety of different reasons, there is a drive amongst, like, younger people and just culture in general to find more... I guess we would say you're saying self-segregated or like curated spaces, right? And part of the, on the one hand, I can 100% understand that for like, in some ways, going to a gay bar, you felt like that in some way, right? In the sense that it's like, I'm going to a place where I know that there are other people that, you know, other guys that want to have sex with guys or into guys or are however else you want to define that. The bars with straight friends, it's like, you have no idea, it feels a little alienating, you never know. You know, so I can understand that impulse, but it also seems like a kind of resistance to the random encounter or the chance encounter or different kinds of unexpected contact that seems to be going away at a time when apps and other kinds of digitally mediated community are atomizing us from anyone who Mm. doesn't think or experience life exactly the same way that we do. Well, yeah. And I think, I guess this takes it into a slightly different area, but I think one of the, that lack of being in the same space, kind of breathing the same air and just literally seeing things in dimension Mm. and kind of being able to, there's serendipity, like great serendipity, like meeting somebody that you can find something in common to have a laugh about. But what that might be, might be that something in that space is is something that you might initially feel kind of uncomfortable about. You know, like there might be a drag queen whose rhetoric is a little bit outdated. And as an individual hearing it, you feel a kind of discomfort. But then you're in this space where you maybe are trying to keep in mind that they're from a different generation and you can see the reactions of other people in that space. So in other words, where I was going is that that thing that you're laughing about, that you get along with somebody else, you know, you meet somebody, it might be this comes from a sidelong glance about something that you feel a bit ambivalent or unsure about. And maybe that drag queen redeems themselves or digs themselves deeper. But you keep seeing things in a longer period of time and in dimension. And so you can see the nuance of it. And yeah, so it's like not TikTok, where it's like, (laughs) what's the before and after of the six seconds? That's interesting because it also makes me think of how you start the book where it's a relatively graphic sexual encounter is how the book starts at a gay bar. So I wonder if sex in the book is also a sort of grounding method because if everything else is performance, if everything else is sort of put upon you and that you take up in a way, 
sex becomes sort of a pure act, that there's something grounding to sex and that it really grounds the identity in a way, right? Because the identity is, I like to have sex with men. And here I am doing that. <laughs> yeah, and if because it begins in a dark room and it's sort of semi-public space, I do think there is a performative aspect. It's kind of like that kind of moment where you feel like you're watching yourself and maybe judging yourself and mm-hmm. trying to take stock of your actions. And there's a feeling a, a little bit of, I think I established that that kind of position that I think that I inhabit, I think I established quite early on in the book, there's a moment where I talk about a decision lagging behind the act. Yes, yeah. There's a couple of different, I mean, it starts, one of the reasons it starts graphically is because I wanted the book to be homosexual, not just kind of gay in a way that was sort of safe and positive and political and successful. I wanted it to be homosexual. And I also wanted it that, I mean, it came to me quite naturally, that opening, just because a bunch of those thoughts, weirdly, there's a lot of kind of literary flashes in the beginning of the book that did just kind of come to my head in a cruise club. But I I also wanted to establish that it wasn't going to be about utopian spaces and that it was an exclusionary atmosphere in some ways. It was a men's only night. And I wasn't necessarily completely comfortable, even though there's like a frisson in that environment that was undeniable, if that's, you know, something that turns you on. To pick up on something that you were saying a little bit earlier about like not wanting to sound romantic or whatever, there is actually quite a bit of romantic impulse in the writing and in the book. I mean, this is why I think it is also quite easy to call it an elegy, right? It's like a very loving, if ambivalent, about very key and specific things. Yeah. Embrace of a place that seems to be receding from cultural memory. So what I'm kind of wondering is, A, when you feel romantic for the gay bar, what does that mean, past or present, in the ways that we've been talking about too, like real or imagined or hoped for, I guess, are you missing most right now? I suppose where I'm coming from with that is that I don't sort of separate, I guess, romance in its Valentine's sense and in its literary or philosophical sense from debauchery or humor or it doesn't necessarily occupy a certain kind of space like an Italian restaurant with a candle on the table, like, you know, it permeates like anything else. So yeah, no, I mean, I shouldn't feel shy about kind of a certain romanticization, even though obviously there's politically, there's problems with a kind of rose-tinted glasses and a kind of dewy-eyed nostalgia for, you know, and so on. Like it can be an impediment to progress. It's funny when people ask about bars that I want to be at or miss. I mean, I think there's a, a couple of the chapters in the middle talk a lot about I was very cognizant of the fact that most readers probably have some kind of realm of imagery of what a gay bar is. And that hasn't necessarily always been my experience of a gay bar or Mm -hmm. probably a lot of queer people who have gone out to a variety of places. And a lot of the environments that I wound up being quite quite fond of, probably quite evidently fond of in the book are sort of mixed or they're not really gay identified. And But like, you know, in the moment, they just felt kind of natural. I'm talking about sort of 2000s San Francisco specifically. And in the moment, that just felt kind of natural and sort of uneventful. But in a way, like that was a turning point like any other. Now that it's 20 years later, it's like you have to kind of take into account what it is to be a mixed bar in the early 2000s. It kind of felt like no big deal and just a slight relief. But it was a kind of minor turn 
It's so funny that you mentioned that. That is exactly the kind of time period that I go back to is when I, the kind of quote unquote gay bar, because you're right, it wasn't. It was a place where your girlfriends could, you know, everybody yeah. was drinking Sparks. Everybody was kind of yeah. more or less fluid. Places like Trash Bar or Plan B and those. Yeah, you know, I like, went to one in Brooklyn that I feel like was kind of like, I'm trying to remember. Well, there was Metropolitan, but that was much yeah. more specifically a gay bar, gay bar. Okay. Like, I feel like right. you didn't tend to see women there as much. Right. But that, like, I think you're right about the periodization, that that was definitely an early 2000s thing. And it, mm. I always go back to that because it was like, this felt very free in a way that didn't seem yeah. airsots or performed. I mean, obviously, it, sure. there was a lot of dressing up and all of that kind of stuff, but or dressing down or dressing down. Yeah, yeah. And it really felt there was a place in the East Village called the Hole that used to. It was it seems crazy and irresponsible now, but it was like ten dollars all you could drink all night. Yeah, which was insane. <laughs> And then, but it brought together because of that, like a group of people that I don't think you could have ever gotten together in one room otherwise. Yeah. You know, and which I don't think you would, you wouldn't necessarily, you know, like I say this about the Rafifi, the kind of club night at Trash Bar that I used to go to, where I met my husband. It's like we never would have been paired on any app or any dating service. And it was just oh, pure right. coincidence Yay. that we happened to, like, if you looked at us on paper, and maybe that's why we fought intensely for the first year that we were together, it's like it would <laughs> never have worked. And missing that kind of space where it was possibility, not mm. perfect, but things felt possible. Yeah, definitely. And the other, I just miss bars with patios. I mean, beer busts, you know. Yes, yeah. Well, that's a San Francisco outside. thing more, yeah. right? Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. You ask a question at the very beginning of the book that I, I wanted to see what your thoughts were on it. You write, I had to consider whether gay bars promised a sense of belonging, then lured us into a trap. In a gay bar, am I penned into minority status swallowing drinks that nourish my oppression? Have gay bars kept me in my place? I wonder if you could talk about that question and how do you think about that now? I think that was partly inspired by a friend of mine who told me in passing after a drink one night that he was attached to his oppression. And it's like, I suppose I don't want to put words into his mouth or to interpret, but I think it has to do with an identity that has been marginalized, feeling like it has some spoils attached to that process for an individual possibly or I guess a kind of sense of pride, you know, even though it's not normally kind of a word that I use. That makes sense because it designates, I mean, it designates a sense of survival, the ability to survive despite circumstances. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure there's plenty of people who the idea is always a kind of obliteration of identity, right? Or of specific group identities. And the goal is always utopian pluralism that involves a kind of assimilation of all identity, you know. But yeah, I mean, I think you just, in a gay bar, you are just kind of conscious of the way that you inhabit your gay. And I suppose it really has to do with a sense of self-consciousness about reverting to type. But there's such, a, I mean, I kind of am quite free about embracing that in the book as well, about how that is. The joy of that is because it's never, even when you feel like you're reverting to type, well, I'll speak from my experience. Reverting to type is kind of, inevitably challenging that stereotype or archetype. I like that actually is like the complicated, you know, something that seems so simple, the reverting to type, but also ends up being shot through with all kinds of complications. <laughs> so Jeremy, one last thing is your book is predicated on thinking about going out 
as a form and staying in at sort of the opposite of that as a form of building and maintaining community. What do you think about how a community maintains itself during a pandemic when going out is not really an option? It brings to mind, there is a queer space in the book called The Chateau in South London that's just mentioned very briefly in passing, but that was a kind of short-lived but spirited space. And they were closing anyway. It was always going to be temporary. But then after the lockdown and they had a some online events, but they weren't like an online disco. I haven't been to anything like that. I haven't really been to like an online nightclub or environment, or whatever, because that just seemed sort of pathetic. I don't know. It, I, just, it's some, I didn't want to do that. But what they did do was one of the events was a film screening and discussion about the Black Lesbian and Gay Center in London, which was an institution that wasn't able to have a particularly long life, even though it went through different phases and so on and so forth. And it's a bit of a, had been a bit of a buried history, but people are more aware of it now. So I think what I'm saying is that I think personally, my experience has been like, if you can take out some of the that pressure of going out, like to have the best night ever, like the pressure to have fun, New Year's Eve type pressure, if that gets removed from the equation and isn't trying to be simulated online or replicated online, then you begin to think about content more really, like actual Mm -hmm. substance that might bring people together to feel, you know, like nobody wants to have a failed good time. (laughs) Nobody wants to have a failed good time. But to do something that feels like a little bit worthy, a little bit serious, a little bit educational, but that a spirit can rise out of it that is fun, I think is a better for some of these energies of collectivity online. That's such a lovely thought, actually. It does sound to me much better than the, I don't know, dancing alone to a Zoom disco or something. It's like everything, like our desire to go out right now, it's like one constant New Year's Eve that you can't be bothered to deal with, you know? (laughs) It's like perpetual disappointment, you know? (laughs) Yeah, and that's a good place to end right where we started at being disappointed. Um. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That can be the theme. It's very much this book, but also very much 2020 to 2021. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there's an element to the book. It's funny because a lot of people tell me that the book makes them want to go out and party and that they're only like a kind of wallflower, bummed out, (laughs) come down aspect to it too, but not to undersell it. But But that's the balance and mix of the gay bar. That is what it is. It's hope and disappointment. Thank you so much for joining us, Jeremy. It's been wonderful having you on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Jeremy. We've been talking with Jeremy Atherton Lim, author of Gay Bar, Why We Went Out. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Jeremy Atherton Lim, author of Gay Bar, Why We Went Out. Next up, we have an interview with Brontes Brunel, author of 100 Boyfriends. We're thrilled to have Brontes Purnell on the line with us today. Brontes is an Alabama-born, Oakland-based writer, musician, dancer, filmmaker, and performance artist. He's the author of several books, including Since I Laid My Burden Down and what is perhaps one of my favorite titles of all time, Johnny, Would You Love Me If My Dick Were Bigger? 
Brontes joins us today to discuss his latest work, A Hundred Boyfriends, a novel, though I think we'll talk a little bit about what form means for this book, comprised of a number of vignettes in which shifting unnamed narrators recount the agonies and ecstasies of finding love, making connections, and sometimes just plain getting off. Variously set in the wide open world of the streets, the confines of private bedrooms, bars, backrooms, cars, bathhouses, and everywhere in between, 100 Boyfriends lasers its focus in on the minutiae of our relationships with others. Putting pressure on what defines durability, affection, commitment, presence, and pleasure in the queer world that it brings to the page, 100 Boyfriends limbs big questions about race and sexuality without ever reducing them to simple answers. Indeed, it leaves many of those questions open. By turns moving and sexy, A Hundred Boyfriends is a testament to love in all its forms and possibilities. Thanks so much for joining us, Brontes. Thank you. For sure. So, yeah, Brontes, I wanted to start, like Eric mentioned in his introduction, with the structure of this book. I was surprised sometimes by the way it would move between third person and this kind of just scroll of places and people, and um, it worked well, and then I, I wondered... What was important to you about considering it a novel as opposed to another form of text? Well, it just felt more complete. And a lot of people ask about it moving between first and third person, but it's like when I was young, I read that in a Grace Paley book. A Grace Paley? Grace, I'm, I'm going to mispronounce everything because it's like I don't... <laughs> I don't read as much as I should. I'm like a rest of America. So pronunciation becomes hard. But I read that in one of her books when I was young. And it just, that's, a lot of literature actually does that. Definitely, yeah. And that's, I mean, that's typical in, in novels that maybe the perspective would shift. And don't you feel like that's the way you recount things? Sometimes I feel like stories happen in third person or mm. like when you're thinking about what happened to your friend that's similar what happened to you. Yeah, I feel like for a book that's like recounting memory, it would be jarring just to have I all the time, too. So that's an interesting point, Brontes. I mean, I, a lot of your work is semi-autobiographical. It, it relies, a, a lot of it is life narration. But can you talk- Autofiction. Autofiction? Here's the thing. People always really want my books to be like memoir, but there's just so many places in that those books where I just would not make that decision Sure. Or I would yeah. do something exponentially worse to where it's based on me and my friends loosely the way it's based on anyone's life. But it's like I can't I can't really always claim that it's me. So that's what like makes that hard. But for the most part, I say autofiction, sure. So one of the things that kept occurring to me, I mean, I should also say I was posting about this the other day. It's like I was up until 4 a.m. finishing this book because I just could not put it down. So thank you so much for it. But one of the things that kept coming back to me is that, you know, there's there's often this like kind of rather stupid and, and vulgar binary that we have between like, say, being in a relationship and just cruising out to catch some dick, you know? What I love about so many of your vignettes is that it shows that actually these like hookups can become the basis for like a really committed relationship. I mean, there's the example of the boyfriend who um, they hook up and then the boyfriend keeps kind of coming back, right? So it's not even to say that it's like a one-night stand. He comes back and then it's not a sexual relationship anymore or even really a clearly romantic one, but he shows up with track marks on his arm and the narrator just takes care of him. I mean, in the way that we wish all people would take care of us. So can you talk a little bit about that kind of how you see this and I don't want to get too heady here, but this like 
kind of oscillation between ephemeral attachments and like durable attachments in the in the novel. No. I mean, I think in terms of hookups, like you got to play to win, right? So, like, <laughs> wait, so you mean you enter the hookup hoping yeah. for the relationship and then yeah. sometimes it doesn't work out? You ought to see me, man. I'd be like licking my lips and arching my back and like being all good at it. But I'm like, you know, once we boyfriends, I'm not going to give it this hard, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, you need to get it now. But no, I think that. Yeah, like, I think those things all can exist, like, in one very real framework. I know plenty of guys who have, like, yeah. boyfriends who they need very much emotionally, but they don't really have sex. And they, them the boys you see on Grindr talking about, I'm partnered, don't expect anything out of me. <laughs> like, bowling everybody, we got the boyfriend at home. But then also, I don't know, there's people who are happy doing that. There's ways in which, I don't know, like, the boyfriend can be a whole other metaphor for something that doesn't really have to do with sex at all. Like there are so many ways that desire work and it's like, it's like almost unchartable. It's like mapping the universe when you think of everybody's like weird trips around sex and how they move around it. So I think there was something about the book that wanted to talk about the nooks and crannies. And I love that you, say that about um, mapping the universe. That seems so true. And just in that vein, could you talk about some of the ranges of desire that are expressed in the book? Because some of it is, it kind of veers all over the place. And some of the encounters seem like kind of can range to almost compulsive or ugly, or it's not always like just hot, you know, there's, you definitely show a whole range. I had a trouble explaining to people that this book is not a cruising utopia, you know? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> that is not what's going on. Like, I do think that sex definitely, like, warps people's orbits in so many different, like, kind of crazy ways. And I think, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of what I wanted to do. It was like, like, even just mapping one person, it felt like it could take a novel, but just trying to condense it all down to, like, those main bullet points. The biggest part of what you asked to me is like, there's this part in the book where the he's in love with a guy who has a boyfriend and he's just kind of the side piece. And he's like, I've never asked you for anything. And then the, the guy who he wants the relationship with kind of being like, you know, if you thought about it, you already have everything you need for me. And so that's like, I don't know, that encapsulates like so many of those unspoken bonds that kind of keep people together. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Yeah, but there's also, I mean, I feel like there's also a lot of loneliness expressed in the book. That starts when, you know, I don't know if we're thinking of that there are multiple characters. There's like the main eye and then there's the these stories that are told kind of inserts of in the third person. If, if those are also supposed to be part of this, you know, main character's life, but just like from the time of- Well, there's no main character, but the collection of stories- the stories actually together are called The Boyfriends. So there's no main character. It's it's just, talk about that, how that you envision that. Oh, there, I always just kind of thought it was like a group of short stories, like tying together common themes. But that's the problem though, because in my head, all the people talking are black and like, I'm black. So I think that becomes like a weird complication. Whereas if I was a white boy and I said they're different people, no one would ask a goddamn thing. So there's kind of like, no, there's that yeah, interpretation no, of it where, you know, like, I don't know, 
not to get too deep into that subject, but yeah, like I envision them as like very different people. Like even when aspects of their lives they're talking about or as we're talking about whole relationships with people, like, I don't know. I think the, the stories are more compact, more compact than that. I don't know, but some people, if you need it to be one person to feel pleasurable, <laughs> by all means, like, I'm, I'm not going to no, stop you. No, I guess I'm just saying that that's how I often think of character, right? Or especially if I'm seeing a story. I get, But I guess that's right. I guess I kind of have to collect it through an idea of experience happening to one person. And then, you know, that gives me insight into why someone might make certain choices later in life if they've had experiences earlier. But that is just one grouping. And this idea of collective experience is really interesting. And also, I think it makes sense in a book where there is this continual flow of bodies, where it's so much like, you know, um, where, where people are fusing constantly and fucking constantly. It, it makes sense for it not to be focused on a single person. So that's really deft. But just in terms of the flip side of togetherness seems to me loneliness and um, I wonder if you could talk about that in the book. No, at that no, like having a boyfriend is very much a lonely it sometimes. Like it's one thing to like, what's that old blues song where it's like, I can do bad by myself. I don't need help to starve to death. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> like it's very much like that. But then it's also like I wanted to show people's inner mappings within the confines of relationships and how that too is like, I don't know, it's like, it's really vast. And I don't know if it always, having a partner, I don't think it, sometimes we use it as a metaphor to solve these kind of superficial cosmetic social problems we think we have, but mm. it's a blood pact. And so, you know, I, I really like talking about like shit like that. Also, it's like, to bring it back a little bit, it's funny that you talk to me about, like, the use of between third person and I. When I use I, why I like using I is because it's like a weird magic trick, right? You think, of course, when you one part of your brain, one person is, like, telling you a story in first person, but if you're reading I, 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 you become the I. Like, you can actually sit yourself in that character. And so I think that's sometimes why I make that choice where I'm like, no, I don't need someone to observe this character. I need them to be this character to understand these choices that are being made. So I think oh, yeah, I get that. It's like an invitation to like inhabitation. So that no, it's like, totally. Yeah. Speaking of, or maybe not, can you talk about kind of how blackness and queerness meet in the novel in so many ways? your book doesn't, and your writing, I think more generally, doesn't try to fix things into easily digestible or like uh, categories in the of experience or expectations that usually is how those things circulate. No, no, for sure. Oh, you can even see the pause on my face. It's like, it's a, it's a touchy subject, right? But yeah. and, uh, um, I, I think that usually like when Black... Well, I think the bar for Black writers is very, very high and very, very low. By manner of me writing any story, it must be social commentary. Right. I must have, like, something. But, like, it's like I don't really get to escape my Blackness mm -hmm. in this way. But it's also, like, I'm not necessarily, like, singing, like, a Negro spiritual through it either. It's, like, it's very much Gen X Black boy going through the amount of, like, intense angst any of us would 
on top of the fact that there's all these other social factors. Like, you can, like, write a story about, like, your shitty boyfriend, but I don't know. Does it become irresponsible to be like, oh, he's white and has a trust fund, and that means so much more fucking different things than you? This sets a tone in the relationship. You know what I'm saying? And it's not even about a Black thing. Like, that shit happens between two white boys. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it becomes a responsibility of how much do I make this... This can definitely, like, be part of it. It's definitely, like, warping or shaping the orbit. But at the end of it, is this the actual problem or is it more so this fool snores too loud at night? That balance of, like, you know, and across a hundred different white boys, it might be a hundred different things. Like, his trust fund might not be any bother, but, like, you know, like, his shoes or the fact that he won't top... And then, I don't know, you could date a black, you could date another rich black boy, too, and all mm-hmm. the other fucking same problems will come up. You know what I'm saying? So there's definitely a responsibility to it. What irks me a lot, though, is when you're a minority or within a marginalized group, you almost have to explain these class things as so the character does not come off evil to a large a large portion of people, white and black, make intense judgments on marginalized bodies. Most white boys, any white boy trying to be a beatnik can write whatever the fuck he wants. Right. And there's never some super deep class analysis as to how his whiteness fits into that. Right. You know, we haven't seen that wave of writing yet. It's crucial that that next wave of writing come. Somebody say something about it, but we don't really see that. But then also... Once I talk about being black, it becomes who connects, who will still connect to the story. Because all my goddamn life, I had to read shit like a separate piece in high school. And I, a black like boy from Alabama, mm-hmm. had to make myself into a white boy with money from the East Coast because he was the universal character. He was who I filtered right. and calibrated off. I had to be him. Whereas like, some white people read a black character and there's this immediate shut off like, oh, I don't understand this. I'll never be able to understand. Not that. my experience. Yeah. But then part of it is like, no, you won't understand maybe A and B, but X, Y, Z, Z. No, you'll extend, you'll understand a lot of it. Like you need to be able to fucking privilege him as a universal character also. So that's the um, kind of task I have with that, which is an important one, which is actually the work. Do you think that those, the challenges that you're outlining, like, have they changed? Like, do you see, like, real change? Or do you feel like it's more this kind of surface-level changing same? I think writers have been talking about the same goddamn thing since the Nigarati. Like, it's Mm. sometimes in my head, I'm one of those people where it's just like, you really just have to classify something as an irresolvable problem and just kind of move on with it. Because it's like, the problems of representation, how it goes down, who gets privileged, what gets privileged, like, it's still, like, it's still very much a problem. (laughs) And also, as we live in a world that reads less and less, unless it's less than 140 characters, it's really getting someone, challenging someone to read something with humanity and be like, or being able to like, oh, like maybe this isn't my frame of reference, but I understand why this person is making these choices, or I actually do something very similar in my life in certain ways, you know, getting the emotional IQ of people up, I think is one of the blood packs of kind of writing the way I do. And so. I wanted to ask, there's a line in the book I just love so much about a boyfriend who queers time. 
whenever they're together. Time is queered. Um, huh. Yes. I don't know okay, if you remember that. It's, it's, the, it's the boyfriend who, um, you know, becomes like addicted to meth and goes away from the apartment and comes back. But this is recounting like when they first got together and just time was queered whenever they were together. And I don't think I've ever heard that expression before, even like thought, you know, I'm sure you can queer anything, but I'm like, you can queer time. Um, oh, I go the fuck. I went to UC Berkeley, so there's so many fucking disgusting <laughs> conversations on queer temporalities. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that sounds. I guess that but sounds like, more academic. Yeah, but I. Oh, but like, girl, like, let's be 100 percent right here. Like, queer time. They were probably just high together. <laughs> <laughs> Things were dilating. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wondered, but that, that I just love that phrase and that idea, you know, just to be able to do anything to time that sounds exciting as opposed to just bearing it. And I just wondered if that, if that played out for you anywhere else in the book, you know, just the way things happen in the book that, that time in a lot of ways is reduced to sex because that's what happens so much throughout the text. If you could talk a little bit about that idea. Well, no, I think, I mean, I think in any book form, time is queered. You're telling the exactitude of a relationship in like 12 to 15 pages. It's already like mm. a queer time form. But mm. also just, you know, beyond the getting high statement, like you've had those friends or those relationships where you and that person will just sit in a room together and be like talking and like, it's just all of a sudden you look up, it's like an hour and a half later. You don't remember what the fuck you talked about. You just knew you laughed a lot time moves faster or the person where things are really heavy with and you can't, there's a mm. block there and it just seems like every minute feels like an hour. Like I think it's very easy for two individuals to kind of warp each other's sense of time. Looking up and there being a relationship of five to 10 years where you were like, this person's actually kind of shitty, but I just stayed here. Where the fucking years go? Like, <laughs> dude, like, if, if it were quote-unquote memoir, we would be talking about the experience as you had gone through it, you know, and, and, and since it's a novel, we're talking about the experience more in the abstract. That's just why I wanted to draw that line, I guess, to say, right, like, if I thought this had all happened to you, of course, I would want to talk about it, you know, from your perspective, but... But so, but I still want to learn about what had happened to me. I'm keeping that between my therapists. I'm not giving that to you for free on LA radio. (laughs) But I still want to talk about what's happened to you and just get, see if I can get some, some dirt. Like, you know, (laughs) did you, did you think about your relationships in the past and any differently after having written this book? Um, Nah, I look back at my past relationships and I was like, damn, like I was always right. Like I was always right about that. Like, mm. and they were so like every year those people get exponentially wronger. Um, <laughs> but um, I think it's, I don't know, it's it's a good, it's a good time. And it's always a good age to like kind of look back at like anything like that. Like I look back at, yes, my past relationships, relationships my friends have, um, and kind of how that voice moved on and matured. Like, because it takes such a different tone than Johnny, Would You Love Me If My Dick Were Bigger, right? Yes, yeah. I'm glad that I wrote Johnny, Would You Love Me If My Dick Were Bigger because you can only get away with that voice in your 20s, right? 
So that's fair. Like, yeah. 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 My writer friend Alvin Orloff told me, I think I just moved to the Bay. I was 20 years old and he had just wrote Gutter Boys. I talk about this all the time, but he was like, yo, if you're going to write like any type of memoir, or, like fiction, like do it as it's happening because you're not going to remember that shit when you're 40. And I was like, oh, okay, let me get on it. <laughs> but I think this now is like just kind of like a sum total. There's something about 100 Boyfriends that's actually a huge, like, telescope back at, like, a, a whole organism, like, a whole body of something, and being able to, like, comment on it and chart it. You know what I mean? Like, as far as, like, just, like, lived-in, like, visceral experience, of course. But, at, I mean, who can read that book and not be like, oh, I've definitely been through that situation with somebody specifically. So 100 Boyfriends is all of us. For sure. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. There's several boyfriends that I can locate in 100 Boyfriends. Okay. Um, but as we, uh, to, to kind of wrap up here, you know, one of the things that I think stuck with me, you know, now admitted it was 4.30 in the morning, so I was bleary for a bunch of different reasons. But, you know, as I was... I'm queered. Yeah. Well, but actually, I think that is... It, it, there's, there's something about, I think... Queered relation, I guess, which is the kind of, and I, I don't, I want to be clear, you know, I think sometimes we're like, oh, well, gay men have this particular perspective or whatever that's unique and nobody else has it. Not true. But I do, what I like about this is that a um, hundred boyfriends in the way that readers will be able to see their own relationships reflected there or learn about other relationships they've not had or think about things differently, what I like about it is that the boyfriend we tend to think of is like, oh, that was my boyfriend from such and such, right? It's in the past. It's this other thing. It doesn't impact me. But the narrator that you have written variously throughout the, the book actually continually experiences these men, right? And sometimes that's the person physically comes back, but also other times it's just an I have experienced, and I think everybody has experienced this. It's like, it can also be, you're in the grocery store, you're in the line at CVS and you're suddenly like, you know, you see a stick of gum or something and you're like, oh, that reminds me of like Joey. That reminds me of this. So can you talk a little bit about that, about how it's like, in a sense, it's like living with a hundred boyfriends in a way that doesn't allow them to purely be past or necessarily be totally present. Oh my God, like, girl, like when you in bed and like you can feel some of them on top of you sometimes, like you'll get a flash <laughs> of memory. And you're just like, oh my God, like God, Lord, I'll never let him go. Like, that's so crazy. Or like seeing someone that looks like them somewhere. Yeah. Like, you know, or even like stalking the Instagram and like as much as you hate them, there'll be that one cute picture and like your heart stops a second. You're just like, yo, like, I love this boy. Like, I, like, gave my fucking whole life to that. Like, yeah. And I feel like you should be able to, like, if that's what those feelings are about. And again, when it comes to time, like, it charts a certain sense of time when I look at these different people or when we look at different yeah. people through our lives. Like, it's like, you know, we go through so much repetition and, like, literally like the years can really blur together, but sometimes it's like a piece of art, a photograph, the people we have been with, you can be like, oh, I was in that city at that time on that street. This is what was going on. I was working there. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. they do become like these weird milestones of how we mark our lives, you know? And so sometimes I think we just have to give honor to that and like kind of like talk about that. And 
hash what that was about out. So that's my favorite Valentine's Day card. (laughs) 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 All right. So we've been speaking with Brontes Purnell, author most recently of 100 Boyfriends. Brontes, thank you so much for joining us. I love you guys. Okay. I love y'all. Thank you for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotton. The publisher and editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lutz.